We'll be turning to Genesis chapter 1. It'll be our passage that we'll start with this morning. I was thinking as I was preparing for today, I thought you all are kind of used to me going back to Genesis. And I would say probably that's going to be a recurring theme as long as I'm breathing air. But I don't just simply go there because it, it is familiar, but I really go there because I find there is a great importance for us there. When we consider all that culture is doing in its so many deviant ways, the way we understand what is true and right and just is really to go back to the original intent, the anchor of it, the foundation of concepts. God created man and woman, male and female. Now we understand what that means, but we certainly abide in a culture that would certainly twist that and shred it. So we find truth and we anchor ourselves here. But I come back to Genesis chapter 1 also because really it's coming off of the summers that I have where we spend a lot of our time not just talking about dinosaurs, which I enjoy paleontology immensely, but so much of what we're doing is really setting the context of the world that is around us in light of geology and paleontology with a biblical foundation. We tell people when they come into the museum, and I tell people at the dig site, we present what we do in the context of biblical history, which means we look at a literal Genesis chapter 1 as six days of creation, We look at the flood as a literal event that destroyed the face of the planet. And those are become historical frameworks, foundations upon which we build scientific thinking. And so I know that most of us have grown up with an educational environment that is much different than that. And so any chance I get an opportunity to begin to continue to reorient our thinking and set us back in that foundation It's important to do for me. Now, with respect to conversations, as I mentioned, that we have, I still have them here. And many of you through the years have expressed either a personal struggle with understanding how to do what to do with science in Genesis, or you have family members or friends, or you're just parents or grandparents, and you see the children or grandchildren around you, and you want to orient their thinking. How can I set these children on a path that is going to sustain them well moving forward? What kind of foundation can I put under them? And so I want to try to be helpful along that line any chance I get. One such conversation that really intrigues me that we had this past summer, it was an interesting dynamic. I didn't even know this, but we had a film crew from Holland came in. And they were filming a program of which I was going to be part of. Now, if any of you all are thinking, which I know you're not, that you're wondering if I've gone out and hired an agent so that I can promote my film career in Holland, I am not going to be doing that. But it was interesting. They had the, were going to go to museums and dig sites, and they wound up crossing paths, even though they actually knew each other in real life. And so that was going to be the premise. My part in the role was simply to come in and just kind of facilitate a creation-based perspective in the flow of the argument or in the flow of the film. 
So I'm like, okay, we can do that. So they did their filming. I came in and we went through a few exhibits and filmed a little bit. But at some point, I begin to feel or recognize that the tone of the older gentleman who was the scientist began to change. For as the director would, would say, this is what I want to do, he would say, Tommy, I know what you believe. I want you to articulate that on film so we can have that as part of what we do. He said, okay. So the younger gentleman would start the, the conversation and I would talk. And this happened three times where the older man would jump in and interrupt the conversation. And we would go off on some tangent, which I found very odd in light of what they were trying to accomplish. But we got to one point and he looked at me and he said, Tommy, the problem with you is that you believe the Old Testament was written by God. (laughs) Now, I tell you, I can remember now that pause in my head like, I'm waiting for the punchline. Because, yeah, you're right. I do. And that was it. He was hoisting some accusation that I was endorsing. And so I turned and I looked at him and I said, so what do you believe? He said, well, Tommy, I believe the Old Testament is history. Okay, well, I was going to jump on that. Because when I hear history, what I mean is a written record of that which actually happened. That's how I define history. So I said, so we go back into Genesis chapter 1 and we see six literal days of creation. Is that history? Oh no, that's myth. Okay. So following his logic, so at what point through the Old Testament does it transition from history to myth? And he said, it's all myth. And so what I really walked away from is a real shift in his perspective when he began to be backed into a corner and have to defend his position. He was willing to abandon the scripture, the Old Testament, specifically Genesis, as having any historic validity. This is the journey we go through in our world today, where our sciences, our educational process wind up with these kinds of dynamics where the history of Scripture can easily be dismissed. Now, I'm going to spend a few minutes kind of talking through this because I think there are some important insights that hopefully will be encouraging to you along the way. I'm getting a little dry here. So when I think about your or our journey through education, when we grow up, and what I mean education is there is a, there is a um, in the education system, a learning math, science, English, but there also as we grow, whether we, even if we don't grow up in church, we have a sense of who God is. We're asking those kinds of questions. And so the, the totality of our education journey is one that's very varied for each one of us, I recognize. For me personally, I grew up in church. My mom tells me that I've been in church ever since I was four weeks old. That has been my journey. But as I reflect upon my experiences in church and Sunday school and the sermons, I don't remember ever hearing any pastor 
make any allusion to any scientific perspective. I had no sense it was really all morals and values and stories. And oftentimes I fear that that's sometimes how we view the Old Testament in particular is simply a collection of stories with morals and values, but really not as literal history. Then I think about my education where I studied the scientific methods, scientific processes, paleontology, uh, biology, anthropology, so on and so forth. But there was never any mention of God and who he is. And so I wound up with these two very diverse ways of seeing and understanding the world. And I'm going to guess that you all probably can relate to much of that, where you did not ever have the two to meet. And I think that's a problem for us. And we probably have struggled with that. I was just thinking through here with respect to, to the Bible and really what... Now, let me hear, hear me say this. The Bible is not a scientific textbook. And I'm not trying to communicate it. But it communicates details historically that have scientific relevance to it. As an example, the Genesis flood of Noah's day. Uh, the scope was global of the flood. Its impact was from beneath the earth's crust. It says the fountains of the deep burst forth and the windows of heaven open. There are two things happening there. We see that it had three phases where we see the onset of the flood, an upheaval phase. Then we see about day, I think it's day 150, where there's a pacifying or settling phase. And then we see the waters running off. Those three phases have very real geological implications for the ground that's under the water, depending on what the water's doing. Now, that would have been nice to see that and understand that there is relevant geology in our world today in light of what Scripture's teaching. Now, I was thinking how to best word this to you, but how many of you, and I'm, this is a rhetorical question, do not raise your hand. How many of you sitting here today have no idea how to explain dinosaurs in the context of biblical history. Now, you guys may be pretty sharp. In fact, I, but I've been into a lot of churches where I would say easily 75 to 80% of the congregation had no sense of how to do that. I've heard this kind of question asked repeatedly. And what it reveals is not so much a lack of detail, but a lack of ability to really trust the information that's before you and to walk with a biblical worldview. That's the real struggle here. I mean, think about it. Nothing exists without God. Everything that has ever existed, God brought it into existence. That is starting with a biblical worldview. We build on that. Dinosaurs are simply land animals. And land animals were created on the sixth day of the creation week. And therefore, the logical argument is what? the dinosaurs would have been created on the sixth day of creation. Does this argument fly with contemporary science? In many respects, it does. Now, I'm not going to chase that particular argument today, but I think it's important for us to recognize science is not the empirical, unbiased pursuit that we have been led to believe often. That scientists are often biased, and they will interpret data based on their worldview. And so we have to keep these things in mind. And so it's a simple pursuit, but it's an important one. The earth itself is covered with fossils. Did you know that 95% of the fossils 
on the planet are marine, and 100% of those marine fossils are found on land. Now think about what I just said. That which was in the ocean is now on dry land in a fossilized buried form. That to me strongly suggests some form of water brought something up on dry land. It's logical. And so as I think about this context of what we see in the world itself, I would ask you is, is there possibly an event in Scripture that actually would have water covering the earth, covering the earth in a catastrophic fashion? You see the merging of science and history. History that's rooted in a biblical worldview. We don't have to abandon any scientific pursuits. If you just think about what we've just done here, We've considered the history of the Bible is literal. We've extracted relevant details from Scripture, and we can now go out into the field, make observations, make our studies, make our assessments in light of a biblical worldview. The late paleontologist Stephen Jay Gould promoted an idea called, called non-overlapping magisteria, where he saw that there were two realms of knowing and that they should be independent of one another. He says, values and ethics are within the magisterium of religion, while empirical facts and theories are within the realm of science, and the two magisteria do not overlap. Now, first question for uh, Mr. Gould would be, is from which magisteria is he making this argument? You know it? Is he making a scientific argument, or is he making a philosophical argument? He's making a philosophical argument. And I would also ask him is, who is controlling the history? So he's content to say the Bible and religion and theology, if, if, it, if, you, if it makes you sleep well at night, it can govern your, your actions, your thoughts, your values, morals. But you leave the rest of that to scientific empiricism, which is not really the case. Look at his comments here. While empirical facts and theories, what is science is going to govern how the history went. Science has such vast limitations, it is incredible. It is a great pursuit. Go do it. But recognize the limitations. It is a history rooted in the, in the Word of God that we can trust. It's not just random people writing stuff down. It is the divinely inspired Word of God. The Creator not only was there when He created, but He, he did the work Himself. He spoke it into existence. I find uh, Mr. Gould's comments impractical and dangerous. I would also say Mr. Gould's comments reflect how most every one of us in this room have grown up in our educational process, understanding science and religion or theology as two different realms that don't spill into one another. Well, let me say this. Consider me a spiller today. I want them spilled together. It is important that we do that. We, we know that there are dangerous byproducts of this way of thinking. How many times have you heard in the past two and a half years, we are following the science when you knew all along they were not following the science? You get to see that they believe they hold the big stick 
and that their empiricism or claimed theories that spin out of that are the way to govern how ways how people think and that is a dangerous thing when you disconnect yourself away from the word of god paul in colossians 2 8 this is where the warning becomes for us as believers to be cautious of this way of thinking he says see to it that no there is no one who takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception in accordance with human tradition, in accordance with the elementary principles of the world, rather than accordance with Christ. Paul recognized that even in this day, there were those who would lead you astray, lead people astray to, uh, to elementary ideas of the world, uh, to uh, what we might say today is naturalism, where everything has come about through natural processes. God has created our minds to be dynamic thinkers. We don't think in two different realms. That's the struggle and the problem. We think as one. Johannes Kepler in the 17th century said, science is the process of thinking God's thoughts after him. I love the picture that is communicated there. As dynamic thinkers, we understand the process of the world and that both science and theology should be integrated into our thinking. Now, I would say uh, as a caveat here, and I believe I'll make this point probably again, just to make sure we're here. I do not say that science and theology are on equal planes. Theology must govern our sciences. Do science, but do science in light of a biblical worldview that is governing that process. As believers, we must lean in and strengthen our theology. It will help govern us well. Science can and should reinforce what the Bible is revealing to us. A look at the natural world should show the hand of God and his divine imprint upon his creation itself. Science sees the world, but the world is fallen and sin-cursed. This is one of the reasons why we don't put theology and science on equal plane. Because when science, when we look at our world, we have to remember we're looking at a fallen world, a cursed world, a judged world. It is never going to communicate on the same level as the Word of God. Those are two different things. We must remember that distinction. Now, to the text. Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning one day. While my focus will be on this one in particular this morning, I thought it might be helpful to have a slightly larger context for us in this moment. Our understanding of origins starts here. Our understanding of God's hand in bringing creation into existence starts here. We have a clear, concise, neat text that describes the grandeur of God's hand upon creation. I find it interesting, and I may have shared this with some of you before, 
There was in the 19th century a scientist named Herbert Spencer. He was hailed with this grand discovery as he looked at the things that compose our universe, if you will. He saw time, force, action, space, and matter. And he was, that's, that's an accurate assessment, though that seems reasonable as short as it might be. Some might think he was on the leading edge and found out something nobody had found before. But yet when I look at Genesis chapter 1, what do we see? In the beginning, that's time. God, that's force. Created, that is action. Heavens, that is space. Earth, that is matter. Was Spencer ahead of his time or was he guilty of plagiarizing Genesis 1.1? Theologians know things well in advance of scientific discoveries. Theologians that are willing to, to see the Word of God and the implications behind it, they are well ahead of often what we see here. The incredible realities that reside here is that time begins here. The existence of all things starts here. This is not a description of God bringing something into existence from pre-existing matter. This is out of nothing. Nothing resided prior to. This is the introduction of the uncaused cause, our creator God, the eternal creator of the universe. We know this as we see and think. As we look at this first word, first, first few words, should I say here, in the beginning, this is taken from the Hebrew word reshith. Reshith is really, I, I wrote down in my notes more than a time for marker, but it's uh, really, it's, it's an anchor point. I think of if you had a string and you had two pins one at the beginning and one at the end, Rashith is talking about the pen. It is, we see the anchor point of, science, of, of history, of time being set here. This is an absolute beginning of creation. I think as we reflect on Moses as writing the book of Genesis, or really the Pentateuch as a whole, he knew the value and importance of starting here for the Israelite nation. They needed to understand that. We need to start here with this and have this thinking in our minds. This beautiful anchor, as we see here in the beginning, God created, it creates a distinction between that which is created and the creator itself. We understand that. And, and really what we see as we look at the world and its deviant perspectives is now the world, because it has rejected God, now is left to worship what? The creation. And in some form, shape, or fashion, that is what the world often spends its time doing, is worshiping the creation. Romans one twenty five says, For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed for uh, forever. I think sometimes we tend to minimize this, and yet there's such profoundness in recognizing 
the eminence of God as the eternal being and eternal creator of all things. Time itself finds its meaning here. Time is the pressing forward of physical reality that is dependent upon energy to move and the universe to have a place in which to move. I'm going to read that again. Make sure you're with me here because I want you to understand that there is a a complete integration of all things must come into existence simultaneously. Time is the pressing forward of physical reality, and that physical reality is dependent upon energy to move and space to occupy. And all of that happens simultaneously here in the creation. Now, matter represents physical reality. Energy represents the capacity for that physical reality to move and to work. So let me read this verse one through, verses 1 through 4 again in light of what I just said. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void, and the darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. This entire context of verses is a simultaneous action. It's not a progressive action. It all must happen at the same time. Space, matter, and time, and energy coming in simultaneously. Creation is being energized by a triune Godhead. We see in the Father, God creates, which is activity and energy being infused into creation. We see the Holy Spirit hovering over the surface of the waters, energy being infused into creation. And we see, where do we see Jesus Christ here? And God said, the Logos, the Word, Jesus Christ is here as well. And there's power in His Word. We see in Hebrews 11:3, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. John 1, 1 through 3, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning, all things were made through Him, and without Him not anything was made, anything made that was made. And in 1 Corinthians 1, 24, Christ, which is the Word, is the power of God and the wisdom of God. We see the Trinity not only bringing creation into existence, but energizing it, pressing it forward. And when you think about with respect to time, and we see this, inner, this creation moving forward, how do we measure time today? I mean, think about how do we get a day? The one full rotation of the earth. Our month is the rotation of the moon around the earth. And how do we get our year is the Earth's rotation around the sun. So where do we get our concept of week? Here. Genesis chapter 1. God created over six days and rested on the seventh. Our concept of the week is here by God's divine decree. And so we see this unified work is alive and active. Now, what I find interesting and it's important to remember, and so we see this in various realms, is that sometimes people will connect God 
to creation in that he, God is either part of creation or creation is part of God. And God is separate from creation. He is transcendent. He is outside of that which is created. And so when you think about the idea of time, God is not impacted by time at all. He exists in the past, present, and future simultaneously. Uh, while this... Uh, while this picture does not communicate the full depth, St. Augustine uh, would present this picture of if we as individuals were on a road, we could only see so far down that road. But if we had a vantage point up high, we could see the entirety of the road. Now, as I mentioned, this really doesn't communicate the full depth but this is a sense of how God is going to see time and really abide in time. He sees above it and beyond it. And so he's not restricted by it. Revelation 1.8 says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Isaiah 48.12 and 13. Listen to me, O Jacob, even Israel, whom I called. I am he. I am the first, I am also the last. Surely my hand founded the earth and my right hand spread out the heavens when I call to them. They stand together. And as we've already read out of Job 38, and I'll just read this first couple of verses. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now gird up your loins like a man and you will instruct me. And here's the words we need to be reminded where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? The answer is, we were not anywhere. We are part of creation. And so when God speaks about time, he, he speaks uh, with respect to no restraint is put upon him. There is no impact upon him in time. But he speaks about it to us chiefly as an exhortation for us to cherish the time, to take care of the time, to be mindful of the time, to work in the time that we do have. While many of us may fear death and what is to come in front of us, God has given us a time to be born, a time to live, and a time to die. And so we're bound to the creation work here in light of that. The beauty is that God has set before us a new creation that we get to inherit because we, as believers, will enjoy moving into that part of life. Psalm 90.12 reminds us, teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. As we look at the word God, which is Elohim, Elohim is the plural form. But what's interesting about it is there are singular verbs that are used here. And so what you see here is instead of, he's not using the singular word for God, but a plural form. Now we understand also in, uh, let's see, that's in verse 26 of chapter 1 says, then, then God said, let us make man in our own image according to our likeness. And so we see a plural sense here. Even within the first few verses, we see God the Father, the Holy Spirit, and the, and the Son, the Word. And so this sense of the Trinity is really played out here in Genesis. While it's not per se trying to teach that idea, we see this, this singular God 
with multiple persons, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, a unity, if you will, in diversity. And God brings creation into existence ex nihilo by divine fiat. Ex nihilo means out of nothing, and by divine fiat is by his divine decree. And we see this divine decree idea repeatedly, and God said, let there be. Let there be, let there be. God repeatedly in Genesis chapter 1 is speaking that which he has determined will come into existence. He says it, decrees it, and it happens. Now, let's stop for a second there. Is your life just some willy-nilly, I hope it figures out, and there's no God that's just kind of sitting around on the, on the corner just waiting to see what's going to happen? See, when I look at this, I see a, a God who speaks and it is so. That God has not stopped His sovereign hand upon your life we may not always enjoy the moments that we experience, but God sovereignly is moving in those moments. God is decreeing and ordaining those things before us. This should, if nothing else, remind us of the grandeur of who God is and how He works in our individual lives. He is mindful of me and He's mindful of you, every single one of you in this room. This creation account each day is marked by it is good, and we see the conclusion of the creation week, it is very good. And I was thinking, what is God communicating here? What is he meaning by that? Some things that struck me is creation is as I wanted it to be, meaning his declaration of good is that he recognizes it is what I want. There's another thing is, I enjoy the beauty that I see. I've created it. Think about the things of you, particularly those of you who are artists to some degree, when you put something together or redone a room in your house. You sit and you look and see what your hands have wrought. And I can see God sitting back and just recognizing the beauty in what he has just brought into existence. Creation bears the mark of his divine imprint. I see my hand in this creation. And also I see is that as he looks at creation, I've created a creation in which the humanity that I placed in it as special are going to look at that creation and that's going to push them to me and worship. We're created to worship God. We're placed here to worship God. Our failure to worship God is not because God has not created a world that's sufficient or that he is an insufficient God, but it's really more out of our own fallen nature. But God has placed us in a world in which we can look around, even in the fallen state. Think about the beauty that surrounds us even today in a fallen state, which causes me to think, what's eternity going to look like? What did the original creation look like? We have no sense of what that might be, or at least a little, very little sense. The next word is created, bara. It is used 
primarily to describe God's creative acts and never of man's creative acts. According to scholar John Sarfati, bara always means to create and is only applied to a divine creation, the production of that which had no existence before. And so you see the unique expression, the unique word that is being used here. When I think about creation, it's an act that reflects ownership and authority over that which was created. Uh, a few years ago, uh, Martha and I recognized uh, a photograph hanging up in a hardware store. There's a hardware store, this is about three years ago, a hardware store is just really next door. And inside they've got banners hanging up with pictures and these pictures are meant to represent things in the Glendive, Montana area. And then they put their logo, so it's kind of a promo thing. And we walked in, and of course, when it's dinosaur stuff, that catches our eye. So we looked up, and that's T-Rex. That's the T-Rex in our museum. Wait a second. That's a picture I took of the T-Rex in our museum. Now, they had not asked for permission, nor had I given them permission. So I'm like, well, there's my first published work, and I didn't even know it was going to happen. So, <laughs> surprise. Now, the reason I mention that is... How do, you, how do I know it's mine? Well, part of it is I recognize the framing, the composition. I recognize the processing that I did on, on my computer, the tones, the colors. I could tell enough. Now, I went online and went to our website, and actually that picture was on our website, so they just went to our website, plucked it, and used it, which is fine. And my failure was is I did not put a watermark on it to protect it that way, and I understand all that. But my point here is that I was able to recognize that image enough that I saw it as my creative work. And if I put a watermark on it, I would be putting a stamp on it that it was my creative work. This is what I see God has done. He recognizes his work. He knows his work. He's placed a stamp of his divine imprint upon his work. That's part of being a creator is you recognize that which you created and that which you brought into existence. Creation is a supernatural and spontaneous act. This is what we can just really parse out from looking at the world itself. It is an ab it's abundant of complex systems. If you take just the human body itself, uh, just our cardiovascular system alone is complex. But then when you think about the multiple complex systems within our body and how integrated they are with one another, you see what happens as we look at the world is we see complexity on top of complexity on top of complexity. It's almost like somebody stopped and pre-thought, designed and engineered the whole thing, and then brought it into existence which is exactly what happened. God's not just speaking random thoughts of bringing creation into existence. There's the infinite mind of our creator who thinks prior to speaking, and once he speaks, it happened. We can see that in the world around us. The evidence of God's image within us, I was thinking about just some key things here that might help flesh out some of this. God creates beauty 
and complexity from nothing. In response, we mimic his creative expression by crafting art, design, our study of nature and seeing the complexity. It's a natural response that if we're created in the image of God and we see how he's brought creation into existence, that we should mimic to, to one degree or another those same creative attributes. God speaks so that we may know him. He reveals himself and he does so in a Trinitarian form. There's this level of communication within the Godhead and then he communicates who he is through his word and through his creation. In turn, we seek to comprehend and understand what it is he's taught us and help us to understand and learn and grow. And then we communicate with one another. We didn't come up with communication. This is part of how God has created us. We communicate thoughts, our feelings, when we hurt, expressions of love. It is why this here, what we're doing today and what we do frequently, even during the week, is so vital and so important. We don't hang out together because we just simply like one another. There is a deep, abiding relationship and fellowship and like-mindedness. Our hearts are drawn together. And so when we lose people, we feel it very deeply. And when new people come in, we're anxious and excited about what we know you're going to get to experience as you immerse yourself more deeply into fellowships like ours. God placed us within creation so that we might enjoy the bounty of his hand and in turn keep and work creation. Now I am about as far away from global warming, climate change, save the planet as you can get. But I do believe there is a responsibility we have to be good stewards of what we've been given, to take care of the world, to enjoy the world, to abide in it in a reasonable and responsible and rational manner. And so these things are so vastly important. And, and in the end, it reminds me that our Creator is due all of our praise and honor and glory, as we see in Revelation 4.11. Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and because of your will, they existed and were created. As we look at our last two words here, heavens and earth, Shamayim and Aretz. The heavens and earth concept was a way of for the Israelites to express the total totality of reality, heavens and earth. For what I see happening here, heavens would be the universe, and the earth would be, at least in the immediate context, the earth itself, which would have been a water sphere that God would have filled the universe itself with sun, moon, and stars, populated the earth that is below us or that we enjoy here together. And so we see really the expressions of in the beginning God created, he begins to bring creation into existence. Now, I'm certainly not going to go through the whole creation order this morning, but you're familiar with the story to understand that is that God 
frames creation and then begins to fill his creation as he journeys through the six days of this creation week. As I think about the potential impact and really so much of what I was saying in our opening comments, I'm, I'm aware of the impact that when we migrate away from a theological mindset and understanding of God as creator, there are dangers. Uh, I don't know. I'm particularly mindful of high school students because I understand for those of you that go into college in some settings, you're unless you have that right college choice, you're going into a, a world that seeks to destroy the way you think about God. It is hostile, either in a passive means or an active means, but it is hostile to what you believe about God. I know some of you may sit here this morning and be struggling about what to do with science, and so I hope this morning will be helpful with that. My encouragement to you would be is to anchor your thinking theologically, to anchor your thinking here in Genesis 1, let this be uh, the, the launch point for all of your processes. On the flip side, I don't want to lose any of you that are there and solid. There have been many that I've read about through the years, many believers, I assume, if I could use the, approach it that way, who at least there are people who have articulated a faith in God and at some point have walked away from God. And repeatedly what I hear is they walked away from God because of science, scientific ideas. And I hope if anything I've demonstrated this morning is that we don't have to walk away. It's, it's, a, it's a pagan perspective on science that twists things that really become the problem. And so I'm mindful of that. I hope in the end, as much as anything, that as we look at the declarations of God as creator of all things, that it will draw our hearts to worship him all the more. They will recognize the immensity of who he is, and in light of that, being mindful of who we are as created beings. And so I hope it will draw our worship. Psalm 8, 1 through 4 says, O Lord, or our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? So I trust that this will be a means by which to draw your heart. What I'd like to do kind of as we begin to culminate the morning, I've got three passages I want to read. Uh, it will take a couple of minutes to read those. But what I want us to see here in why, I re why I'm reading these passages and why I'm reading them in this order is what I want you to see is the form of progression that Scripture take us, takes us through. Because we look at creation as created perfect by God. And we know that Adam and Eve rebelled against God, sinned against God, and creation fell. Mankind experienced death. But there's some interesting things as how God responded in those moments and how even in that, God made a way for a Savior, Jesus Christ, 
And that he is set before us eventually, as Second Peter reminds us, there will be an uncreation of this world. We will get to experience the new creation as believers. And so in the midst of all that we feel, and all the midst of the angst that we may struggle with, there is something really good coming. And I want you to be mindful of that as we journey through. So if you'll just bear with me as we journey through these passages, and we'll start with Romans 8, our groaning. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only that, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for adoption as sons and daughters, the redemption of our body. The necessity of death, 1 Corinthians 15. But the fact is, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man death came, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam we all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But someone will say, how are the dead raised? And with that kind of body do they come? You fool! That which you sow does not come to life unless it dies, and that which you sow, you do not sow the body which it is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or something else. But God gives a, it a body just as he wished. To each of the seeds, a body of its own. And so we're reminded that even in death, there's hope for the believer on the other side. And then our longing and our hope, a new creation and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away. And there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among the people, and he will dwell among them. And they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no longer there will no longer be any death, there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain, the first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And this is the real treasure of our hope is in Jesus Christ and the eternity that's before us. There's a beauty in this. As we consider the creation account, we can recognize that there's another immense beauty in the new heavens and the new earth, the new creation that, is, that we are waiting for. This, in many respects, opens a door for us to see and know the one who holds all things in the palm of his hand. Now, sometimes I try to get literal and I'm thinking, how big is that hand? Because the universe is immense. Obviously, I recognize this is not creating proportion and scale, but what it recognizes is that 
God in his immensity, his power, his sovereign authority, is, is, it is as if creation were sitting in the palm of his hand. We see this beautiful meta-narrative when we look at the Garden of Eden and its descriptions of what's there. And you come all the way to the end of Scripture, Revelation 22. And it's interesting and really beautiful, the parallels between the new heaven and the new earth and the original creation in the Garden of Eden. Those two are interesting how they parallel one another. And so I think we'll one day get a sense of what the Garden of Eden is like as we enter into this new heaven and this new earth. Genesis 1 through 11 does a really beautiful job of setting some foundational elements for the gospel for us. We recognize in the creation account that our lives are not our own. That God is the owner and authority over our, our lives and he is the one who gets to set the law. He is the law giver. He sets what is right or wrong, and he is just to plunge it into a curse, and he will be just to remove it in the end. We know that we're sinful and rebellious people, as I've already articulated in Scripture here. Adam and Eve set into motion. We might blame Adam and Eve, but any one of us would have done the same thing in the same spot. Sin has been passed on to us, but we also sin. And we carry that weight and that responsibility. Genesis 3.15, the Proto-Evangelium, the first giving of the gospel, talks about the one who would crush the head of the serpent. And we see provision even made in Genesis for the coming of our Lord and Savior. And we know that ultimately Jesus Christ satisfied the demands of God's wrath. We even see the picture of Adam and Eve's nakedness being covered with a slain animal. These are all beautiful pictures. And this is right here at the beginning, guys. Set here before us in the creation account is pictures of what will come in eternity and what will come throughout Scripture. So I hope and trust and pray that you will take these words to heart and that you will be moved and shaped by them and be encouraged by what the Word of God has prepped before us. Father, we thank you so much for giving us these moments to enjoy and reflect. We thank you so much for allowing us to abide together as a body, as a fellowship, as a like-minded group of believers, where not only fellowship is so much of what we do, but we're able to speak into one another's lives to be able to share and open up your word together. Thank you for these rich treasures you have placed before us. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Jolton, Tennessee. For more information on Calvary Bible Church or for more audio, please visit our website at cbctn.org.